The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to The Living Church Podcast. Midterm elections, general convention, Lambeth Conference, family dinner last week, a work meeting this week, interacting with parishioners on social media, Mm, seeing for the first time the bumper stickers and the various car decals of the person that you thought you really liked, from friendships, family, marriage, to church leadership scenarios, to international politics. We live in zones of conflict that we can't, well, actually we can avoid, and we sometimes have to avoid, at least temporarily. And we can and sometimes have to simply manage conflict. But the people who lead peacebuilding programs at Jerusalem Peace Builders believe that you can always, with the right tools and with some time, participate in transforming conflict. What the heck does that mean? Transforming conflict. And without avoiding religion, politics, or anything else spicy and personal. And that is where we're going today. And this topic is for everybody. I very much include myself. It's for church leaders, basically any listener who is a human being. How can we broach tough topics rather than protecting ever-widening safety zones of silence? And yeah, we all know what those are. They're the ones that produce those verbal dodges, those averted glances, those polite smiles, and that's the best case scenario. But the sticky wicket is that what we avoid often carries our dearest values with it. And that's part of what I learned in my conversation with Nicholas Porter and Sara Benezra. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. So The things that we avoid are often the things that make us human and able to know others as humans, as fully human. And they're often our soft spots, the things that we don't want to talk about, or the things that we go in talking about with guns blazing, right? So if you're not a hider and you're more a wear your opinion on your sleeve kind of person, this episode is for you too, so keep listening. And what if our soft spots, those vulnerable places, are right where God is calling us to connect? calling us to be courageous witnesses to relationship in polarized communities and atmospheres. But how can we face these relational challenges without running away or just exploding? How do we deal with feeling triggered? Hmm. And what are some tools that we can use for investing patiently in the relational long run instead of what I often do, trying to fix everything right now? The Reverend Canon Nicholas Porter as I said, joins us today with his colleague, Sara Benezra. Nicholas is the founder and executive director of Jerusalem Peace Builders, which is an interfaith nonprofit organization that promotes transformational person-to-person encounters among the peoples of Jerusalem, Israel, Palestine, and the United States. He's a longtime resident of Europe and the Middle East, and he's an educator and an Episcopal priest. Sara is Senior Educator and Curriculum Advisor of Jerusalem Peace Builders. She is a humanist, peace activist, storyteller, and educator with years of hands-on experience in international and intercultural dialogue. They will share bunches of wisdom with us today. It is some good stuff. They'll also tell some beautiful and inspiring stories about the messy but rewarding experience of working with young people from some of the world's most contentious contexts. Peace building is a marathon not a sprint. So let's join them, get hydrated, and get stretched. We hope you enjoy the conversation. 
well, it's great to see you, to see your face and put a face with a name and with an email address. So where are you calling from today and how's life where you are? Well, thank you, Amber. And I feel the same way. I am well, and I am joining you from New England. Very nice meeting you, Amber. I'm talking to you right now from Ahmad Gan, which is right next to Tel Aviv in Israel. How is life in Ahmad Gan right now? Uh, it's, it's hot. <laughs> uh, summer is here. Uh, so, you know, Ugh. it's the Middle East. Um, but uh, life in the land is interesting. Uh, never a dull moment. Sarah, Nicholas, what a joy to have you here with us today. Thank you so much and welcome. So tell us, please, a little bit about the origins of Jerusalem Peace Builders and how you got involved. Jerusalem Peace Builders began in 2011 in West Brattleboro, Vermont, with a very small camp of 11 students. That's all we could convince to join us for a, a two-week summer camp. Uh, today, it's grown into the thousands with maybe six programs this summer, but it began before that. It began as a little boy for me, sitting on my mother's kitchen counter, watching Walter Cronkite narrate clips of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war on CBS Evening News. And I had a feeling deep in my deep in my heart that I only could feel, didn't really understand it, that there was something very wrong and that I wanted to be part of the solution. And it would take many years for that to happen, including serving as the chaplain to the Anglican Archbishop in Jerusalem for a number of years in the 1990s, working at St. George's College in Jerusalem and running the American Friends of the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem. And all of that finally distilled and came forward in 2011 with the birth of Jerusalem Peace Builders. And we've grown steadily and part of our growth and our joy has been to attract Fabulous young people. We now work with adults, but also great staff, uh, diverse staff. We're, we're a ministry of interfaith reconciliation. We focus on l- leadership and peace education. We're known for uh, our youth work, but we do important work with adults as well, both in the United States with Israeli high school educators, both Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews. And this fall we'll be making, well, launching, I should say, an initiative working with Muslim and Christian women in the West Bank. Thank you for sharing your story about you sitting on your mother. It's not a story I've heard before, and it's such a beautiful image. Mm. Um, So I met, I encountered JPB. Uh, in 2013, uh, I, I believe 2013 or 2014. So I was working in Israel-Palestine with groups of young adults. Uh, I've already been involved in peace work and in cross-border and cooperation work between Palestinians and Israelis for a few years, mostly working with young adults. But I was missing working with teens. Uh, when I was a student, I used to work with youth, with middle school and high school kids. 
And in my work, in my peace work in the land, I really felt that I, I wanted to work with younger, uh, younger humans. And that's how I started. Uh, I participated in, in a summer camp in Brattleboro, in Father Nicholas's farm. I was a junior educator back then. And that's how we met. And it was with a group of, I believe, 14 years old um, back then. So I flew with them from Israel-Palestine and we arrived in Brattleboro. And I'm like, okay, this is a different impact. This is a different experience. And it's such a crucial age. And working with young adults is amazing. But working with youth, with teens, is so important. It's a, it's a very different kind of work. It's a very different kind of impact as well. Mm-hmm. We're really working for the long run. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met Father Nicolas and Stuart, who were the co-founders together of JPB. And we really got along, I want to say. We spoke the same language. And I felt that that would be a place where I could thrive as an educator and where I could have a safe environment to work with teens. And so since then, I've been joining the summer camps. And for the past few years, I'm also the curriculum uh, advisor. And I also do staff training for our summer staff. Uh, because as Father Nicolas said, in the summer, we, get, we have four programs running. So that's a lot of staff to train to make sure that they really provide the safe and also kind of challenging and entertaining environment for those young people or teenagers to yeah, to become the best version of themselves. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so beautiful what you both have described. And I love this language of calling, of, of feeling called more deeply to do the things that you're, you're built to do or you're meant to do or you love to do and finding that place at JPB. When I think of calling in relation to peacemaking, I think of, of one of Jesus' sermons, or at least one of his sermons, he probably preached this a, a thousand times, a line in one of his sermons, which is, blessed are the peacemakers. And peacemaking is a calling. It's a vocation that both of you have taken up. Is being a peacemaker mostly just about building the skills for peacemaking? Does it take some kind of special calling? Peacemaking, what's your model and how do you teach it to average people? That's a a fabulous question, Amber, and I'm glad there's more than one member of the JPB team on this uh, interview, participating in this interview, because we're going to have slightly different understandings of that because we're an interfaith team, we're an interfaith team, we're an inter-ethnic team, and we're an international team. So I do believe that there's a calling, and I believe that what we do is not so much taught, but caught. Every, every year we work with a great number of teens and adults. About 10% of those participating catch fire. And they're mm. usually recognizable within the first 48 or 72 hours. Now, there are plenty of exceptions to that rule, but, it, but, it, but it's caught. Uh, you know, part of our part of what we do that helps the, 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 that process take place is we invite the whole person into our program. So uh, body, mind, memory and spirit. 
right? Uh, faith and religious background, religious worship, rituals, prayer is part of what we're doing. It's an, an essential part of what we're doing, just like the learning and the relationship building are essential to what we do. We're not afraid of faith and the life of the spirit. In fact, we, we're excited about that. Uh, the other piece is that we're, we're a four-phased program. This is not a one and done. You join us when you're 16. We all feel good. Uh, we, then we go home and we slowly forget about each other. Uh, thanks to the hard work of Sarah and other members of our staff, we have a four-year sequential program. You know, you join us both in the classroom and in the summer for your freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years of high school. And that creates that uh, a network of relationships and sustained impact. The last thing uh, is a key part of our methodology, which is it's about family. Hmm. The, the, the central social idiom in the Middle East is family. Mm-hmm. And our goal is to go from three families to one family, from Christians, Muslims, and Jews primarily to one family of Abraham from Israelis and Palestinians and Americans to one family of humanity. So allow me to go back to the question and mention Jesus. Uh, so I'm Jewish and, um, and we talk about Jesus and peace and being it, like it, it's a call for peace. And I'm looking at Jesus from my point of view as a wonderful social activist. Mm. He was about social justice. Mm. And that's something that speaks to me. And that's something that I can connect to very easily. Because no matter what we do in life, we do it within a certain context. And when you do a work of passion, this context is even more important. Mm -hmm. If it's teaching, if it's being an artist, if it's being a peace builder, a social justice activist. And what we can learn from this experience of being a peace builder in the land is that the context is everything. And so when we are asking our teenagers, our participants to be peace builders, we can't take them away from their context. Hmm. And they live in a context when they are not naturally encouraged to be peace Hmm. builders. Mm -hmm. So being a peace builder should be something everyone has to do. It should be in the life of everyone. It should be in the teaching of every classroom in the world. But it's not. And especially here in the land, maybe not especially, it's just because I see it from up close, but we're not giving the skills, we're not giving the tools, we're not giving the narrative to our youth on how to live peacefully. And by peace, I mean justice, I mean equity, I mean sustainable solutions for everyone. So even though those things should be taught to everyone, they're not. And so what we are offering at JPB is creating a space when they are allowed to explore those themes and when they can realize that it's part of their life, no matter what kind of leader they are, if they want to be an artist, if they want to be a politician, if they want to be a teacher, if they want to fix cars, it doesn't matter. Those values will be part of their life and of their work. And because in their usual context, they're never allowed 
to play with those tools. They're never exposed to the importance and the nuances and the complexity of those tools. We have to jump in and offer that space. And so it is a calling because if they come to us, that somehow they were called. Somehow they were inspired and curious enough to see what a different kind of life could look like. And you all have brought up, you've you sketched for me these beautiful outlines of, of what you do in Jerusalem Peace Builders. Then I, I go back to what you said, Nicholas, about bringing the whole person, taking time, and using the language and the structures of family. So when I hear about the healing of society, what I hear is the importance also of authentic relationships. But part of that is part of an authentic relationship is in a, a relationship um, where your guard doesn't have to be up all the time. And so you're encouraging people and giving them the tools to build these relationships, not just in a way that says, oh, we never talk about the big topics. Then you say, no, 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 no. Bring your whole self, which is your ethnicity, your religion, your citizenship status, your politics, all the things that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, because these are the things that, that's, that make us human in so many ways. So here's my question. How do you help people hold on to this vision when they go home, where things are harder, where they're not having that sort of mountaintop experience of learning and being with their friends and playing games and eating meals together and experiencing one another's prayer practices and all of this? Why should, when they go home, why should they continue to step out of their comfort zone, out of those safe topics or safe ways of relating to help to, to move into those riskier areas that could be so rewarding and that could help build peace in their families and their relationships and their communities. How do you help them keep those resources with them when they go home? We only talk about the hard things to start off with. And we talk <laughs> about the hard things that we're mostly trained in polite society not to talk about. Because this is this is why we exist, and part we we, we know from uh, our involvement, but also from studies and academic literature and in all sorts of conflicts, including in the Anglican Church and the United States and and in, in Russia and the Ukraine, it just goes on. But certainly in uh, the Holy Lands and Israel and Palestine, that. A key part of the conflict is the dehumanization of the other. And one of the central goals of our time uh, in Jerusalem Peace Builders, whether it's in the classroom or in the summer residential programs or in the alumni programs uh, that Sarah and others lead, is that rehumanization of the other to get beyond the stereotype and uh, be vulnerable enough yourself to both share what matters most about you and receive what matters most about the other. We're crafting an experience for young people that is unforgettable. And it's unforgettable because of the character change, character transformation that takes place 
It has the shape of a hockey stick. You know, in two weeks they grow the equivalent of about a year's worth of growth. And and as as and and in that that unforgettable experience is is the sense of a new self that you don't want to let slip away. Uh, a whole set of lifelong relationships that you're going to do your best not to let slip away. You're, we're also teaching our young people the communication skills and I'm going to call the community-based project skills to be able to stand their ground at home because you're quite right, Amber. Uh, there is resistance. There's going to be resistance at the dinner table when you return. There's resistance at school, and on your sports team, uh, in your neighborhood, at your place of worship. I've given you the, uh, I would say, the not just the theory, but what what is the design of what we do that, that produces this. But I'm, how about Sarah's going to report in, I think, about uh, what she sees on the ground with the alumni uh, every day. Great. Thank you. So I think that it's really about what you said. It's crafting a design that will allow these teens to grow and to embrace complexity. Uh, and I think that in the U.S. or in the land here in Israel-Palestine, we live in a world where we are pushed to see things in a binary way. It's wrong or right. It's black or white. And so it's, it's pulling people away from each other. And it makes discussion and dialogue extremely hard. And of course, we could put people in a room and just say, be friends now. Here is some food and here is a basketball. Um, have fun. And that would work. But until when? The second it is over, then there is no sustainability, there is no impact, there is no effect. So as Father Nicolas said, of course we need to talk about the hard things. And we need to help them understand that disagreement is an option. It's not a deal breaker in any relationship. Because they think that if we disagree, that's it. We cannot be friends, we cannot be family. And so we're giving them the tools, and it's really about crafting these, pro these, these processes of understanding complexity, understanding disagreement, understanding that relationships are complicated, understanding that you can disagree with someone and still be their friends, learning how to listen, learning how to tell your story, learning how to deal with your emotions, learning how to still feel that you belong and that you have an identity, even when you accept your narrative to be challenged by other people. And putting people in a room and hoping for the best doesn't work. There's a lot of work that gets into crafting those programs in a safe but yet challenging way because we want them to grow. And we, it's never a straight line. You know, going out of your comfort zone, as you mentioned, it's not a straight line. Sometimes we need to go back to the, to the comfort zone to breathe a little bit, then to get out again. And so we're offering that space and that time because students or youth, they can stay with us for four years, from 14 years old until they finish high school. And then we have an alumni program because we understand that those changes, it's not something that happens at once. And because we, again, the context is telling them that it's wrong or right, it's blue, it's black or white, it's against me or with me. 
we constantly need to work toward this complexity, then it's constant work. And for teens, for youth, when you're 14, 15, 16, it's exhausting. Hmm. So we also need to be patient with them. Some participants skip a year because they need to do something else. And maybe they will come back in year three. Or maybe after the year four, they, will, they won't be in touch with us for a couple of years. But they might want to come back as staff because it's never a straight line. And we need to be there to help them through this journey. Would you be able to share a story about one of your students and how this, how this worked for them, the growth that you saw in them and their relationships? So I want to tell you a story about, and I'm going to leave a name out of this for privacy reasons, uh, about a young man that joined us at a summer program. And he arrived and he at first was very strong and then lost his way in the program. He spent much of the program not participating in what we were doing, but just wandering around Acer Farm where the programs held almost aimlessly. I think he found some refuge in the kitchen uh, with my wife, Dorothy, and others who prepare these beautiful home-cooked meals for everyone because, of course, we're a family. I think he found a place there. In hindsight, I imagine he was much more challenged than he had thought he was with all these, uh, the complexity that Sarah's been describing. He uh, sort of graduated out of the program, the formal summer program. We didn't hear from him too much, but he did write us a number of letters or, or emails, some of which was sort of presuming a closer relationship than we, we thought we had. We did not then hear from him for seven years. This spring, he wrote us an email just out of the blue. And he said, thank you for changing my life. You set us, you set me on a path in 2014 that has changed the entire meaning, purpose, and trajectory of my life. And now I find myself at the age of 23 for my first job being the executive site engineer for the rebuilding of the subway system and tram system in Tel Aviv. Wow, that's amazing. And he is, uh, I should tell you, he is not Jewish by ethnicity or religion, and yet here he is, really the, the, the mastermind engineer for one of the most important national construction projects in the history of Israel. How he deals with his staff, most of whom are Israeli Jews and Chinese contractors, uh, all comes from his embrace of complexity his ability to communicate and hold on to his identity. Uh, Because for a young man to have such a senior position and not be part of the dominant social group takes a lot of courage. And I am thrilled for him, 
But what I'm really thrilled for is the best is yet to come. Uh, I had so many stories popping up in my head as I was listening to you because we do meet wonderful young humans and they really inspire us. And there's a reason why we come back to a summer camps every summer, even though it's tough. They are having fun. We don't sleep. Um, but so I'm going to, so if I have any class, you shared a story of someone who's already a young adult. Um, and I'm going to go back to our teens and see how they grow. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to tell you a story of friendship. And there are two young uh, participants that I've met during a retreat. because So we have our summer programs that are taking place in July or August. And throughout the year, we have shorter programs, either in schools or short weekend retreats, where we can meet more students and that help us for recruitment. And so I was with a group of young people. They were 15 years old. And they all joined this weekend retreat we did in Nazareth. And, you know, they were a little goofy and they're 15 years old and it's the first time they're in such a, such a, a context and, and they're testing each other out. But people rarely interact. The school systems are separated. So Jews go to a certain school system in Hebrew and Palestinians, Arabs, they go to a school system in Arabic. And so having those spaces in, in the middle of the school year in the land, when they're together, they're kind of like, huh, and we're doing it in English, so everyone feels awkward because it's not their native language. And I could see those two young men kind of, you know, playing who's the toughest and who's the tallest and who has the most friends. And we do some storytelling for them to open up. And one starts opening up about his mom, and he explained that um, their mom is a single mother, and the other speaks about their sister and, and how close they are to their sister. And I see those, like, two big 15-year-olds just becoming the softest, sweetest human beings ever. And because they were being vulnerable. And I saw, I looked at that friendship evolved over three years. And in the last dialogue we had, when they were in 12th grade and we're in the U.S., I just see them sitting next to each other and just telling each other, I love you, man. Oh, I love you too. And by the way, boys never say that, but I wanted to tell you, I love your haircut. And it was suddenly, you know, there were no walls left. And they <laughs> hugged each other and cried. And it was like, oh, this is what beautiful masculinity is. <laughs> and there were no games uh, anymore. There was no game to play as a boy. There was no game to play as a Palestinian or as an Israeli. It was just two beautiful souls who found each other and allowed themselves to be vulnerable together while talking about the toughest thing, things. And I love seeing that growth. I love seeing them becoming who they are in all the complexity and the multitude they contain and love each other for that. Thank you for what you do. Becoming vulnerable with other people is not easy. Some people are married for 40 years and have a problem being vulnerable with each other, much less kids who come from very different backgrounds and have just met. Sarah, when you told the story or when you mentioned the fact that Israelis and Palestinians or Jews and Palestinians have different schools that they go to, this reminded me of a news report that I heard last night about people in the U.S. who are moving to different places where they know that people will agree with them politically. So 
I heard an interview with a woman. She was living in California. She has conservative values. She's politically conservative. And she was tired of the people around her being politically liberal. And so it was just making her angry all the time. And so she moved to a place where she knew that there were more Republicans, where she would feel more comfortable in the place that she lived. So we already have in the U.S., we already have a country that in many ways is divided along in terms of where people live, along racial lines, certainly along socioeconomic lines. And now increasingly geographic regions becoming more blue or more red, becoming more Republican or more Democrat along these, you know, you, you mentioned binary, sort of this, this binary. As you were, as you've both been talking, I've been thinking about how my listeners, how our listeners can apply some of these things that you teach to these young people, to their lives and to their contexts where they are. Many of our listeners are leaders of churches, they're pastors or they're bishops, Some are lay leaders. Others are um, committed people of faith who are um, trying to be faithful in the communities where they are. And as they're hearing these inspiring stories and these principles, most of my listeners are in the U.S. where we're ramping up for a 2024 presidential election that is looking to be like it's going to be pretty messy, pretty messy times. And Many of my listeners are in the Anglican Communion, which is ramping up for a conference of bishops, the Lambeth Conference, this summer, in which there's going to be conflict. There are going to be arguments. Some bishops have already said, we're not coming to the Lambeth Conference because we don't agree with the issues that are on the table. So listeners in contexts that are already full of conflict, how can we help them apply what we're hearing today? to their situations. What is the difference between avoiding conflict, packing my bags and literally moving to a different place across the country, or just scooting to the side of the table or just avoiding the topic, which sometimes you have to do. And then there's managing conflict, which a lot of pastors and leaders have to do. You have people who don't agree on the ground rules for engagement. They maybe don't fight very well. You don't know who's going to say what, so you just have to manage the conflict so no one gets hurt. But then what you do is you transform conflict. So how do people in their own lives who are listening go from avoiding and managing conflict to transforming conflict? What's some advice that you might give them? Yes, we live here in a very small country. This is, uh, I mean, we're less than 10 million within Israel and then you had a few millions in the West Bank and uh, a couple of millions as well in Gaza. And so the scale is very small. And because the story was told in a very binary way, we kind of put people in boxes very easily. So here it's kind of in your face. But I do believe that those divisions exist everywhere. Leaving a conflict, avoiding the conflict, that's a privilege. Not every one can do that. And first, I think we really need to acknowledge that. Not everyone has the privilege, the luxury, to avoid conflict. Some people are born in it and can't go anywhere. So our duty, our moral duty, is to face that conflict. And and to understand that it is a tiring endeavor. It is draining. It is tiring. It is frustrating. And not to tell anyone... Oh, it's going to be easy. 
reaching out to the people you disagree with. That's easy. Don't worry. Conflict management will give you the tools. It will go smoothly. No. Even with the best training, it's not going smoothly all the time because you need patience. And so, yes, patience and empathy. I think those are the first steps. First, understanding that it's our moral duty to face conflict because we don't have all the privilege to leave it behind us or to ignore it, even to still be in it, but, you know, build a nice wall around you and you ignore what's happening outside. And so if you acknowledge it's a privilege, you have the moral duty to face it. And if you face it, you have to understand that it is a long journey, that you need to be patient, that it will be frustrating, and that you can't do it alone. And so find your allies. And your allies might not always be the people right next to you who look just like you and who sound just like you. Find your allies in values because you will feel down once in a while. You will lose hope once in a while. So you need to be part of a community of people who support you and give you hope. And I want to go back to the tool of empathy because we cannot manage conflict, address conflict, without first having empathy for every person present in the room. And that is tough. That is not easy. But even the worst feelings, even anger, comes from a place of hurt. So we need to understand where people come from, acknowledge their emotion. Because also in my experience, if we really listen to people and their personal stories, if we make room for all of their emotions, they, if they feel that their story and narrative and their hurt are all acknowledged, then there is room for change, but not before. So it's a marathon <laughs> because those things take time. Because, I mean, I lose hope once a day. I just never stay there too long. Um, but it's just part of being here and being realistic, I guess. Thank you, Sarah. That was beautiful. Part of her realistic expectations. I I would remind myself and others that when we begin this marathon, we don't start with the idea that we're going to fix this. What we start with is that we're going to contribute to the transformation. You know, I, I too lose hope at least once a day. And, and I lose hope with you know, what I'm doing, you know, you know, these unrealistic expectations for myself. But when I hold on to what my colleagues are doing, what, what JPB participants are doing, and that we're contributing individually as a group to change and transformation, I find hope. Just show up and listen. You know, that's I, 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 unless someone's life is in immediate danger, uh, I'm against the moving, moving away and changing neighborhoods approach. Show up, listen, and I, and just one last little piece to to complement what Sorrow was saying, and that is, I believe that when we show up and we listen, a very helpful response is serving others. You know, and I I think time and again, from my own religious tradition, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. 
you know, he, he just, he, he doesn't try to educate with words, but makes himself vulnerable with a healing action. And we can do that. I don't believe there's any situation where we cannot take at least a small step on our values like peace, healing, reconciliation, the advancement of human life. An illustration that came to mind when you said that, I've been watching a show on Netflix called Love is Blind. There's a little bit of a trashy side to this show. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people cry and have heartbreak and et cetera. So it's, I'm not, I'm not extremely proud to love this show, but there was a scene in an episode last night in which one of the couples in the show is having a fight that just seems completely unsolvable. Both of them are angry. Both of them are blaming the other person. They say things that they regret and they both walk away. They don't resolve the conflict that night. So they go to bed, they wake up the next day. And then Nicholas, when you said an act of service can be so healing, this can be so small. The next morning, the fiance, the the woman woke up and the first thing she did was she made a cup of coffee for her fiance who was still in bed. So he wakes up and the first thing she does is hand him a cup of coffee. And then they have a moment where they cheers, they clink their coffee cups together, they drink coffee for a moment, and then they can start their conversation again. So it took it took a night of sleep, but it also took this small act of service. And he was very touched that the first thing she did after this big fight was make him a cup of coffee. So even, even just a small act of service, let's say that you're at a church meeting or you're at the Lambeth conference, or you are with your family during midterm elections and it's really tense. Something comes up, conversation happens. There's a disagreement. Maybe just pour somebody a cup of coffee or offer to get their coat. I mean, I'm sure all three of us have seen in our lives, simple acts that have taken the pressure valve off of a situation and helped to keep the complexity in place without it becoming a deal breaker. As you said, you've also talked so much about listening and listening being important. I agree, but I've also seen situations in which someone who tries really hard to listen is just steamrolled by another party. The person doesn't fight well, there aren't good rules of engagement, and it just becomes a a verbal slaughter. And it does not build the relationship. It actually tears the relationship down. And the other person ends up in a position of being victimized by the person that they're trying to listen to. So are there any situations in which we just can't listen to other people or we should, we should walk away because something's wrong here? Uh, how do we handle people or communication styles that are creating emotionally harmful situations? What do we do then? Because we are a species that communicates and speaks all the time, we kind of assume that dialogue is an instinct or that it's natural or that it's easy. It's not. It's like riding a bike. And so you need to practice. And sometimes you will fall. And that's why it takes time to learn how to listen. And learning how to listen is also learning to understand your emotions, to understand your triggers, 
to understand pauses, to deal with silence. It's also learning that the words you hear might have a different meaning for you or for the people speaking to you. So the first thing I would like to say is that listening is really a skill that takes effort and commitment and practice. And sometimes, like when you ride a bike, you fall down. So it can be frustrating, especially because dialogue is very personal. When you fall from the bike, it's not as personal as suddenly having your identity feeling that it questioned by someone from a different background. Is it okay to take a break? Yes. But I do believe that we can talk about anything with anyone. But we need both parties or the three parties present to be willing to. We need them to be trained and ready to, to take their time, to sometimes feel hurt, to re-explain themselves multiple times, because it is about human emotions and it's about human identity, and those things are personal and heavy. So people also need time to process and they need to be supported. Any topics can be addressed with anyone. I really believe that. That's an amazing vision. I think that that would be very applicable to marriage counseling as well. <laughs> what would you say, Nicholas? International politics, marriage oh. counsel, same thing. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I'm hearing both today. I'm hearing both. Just add a little bit to Sarah's second point of, of, of the guiding. It takes leadership and structure. And that's what Sarah and, and other uh staff members of Jerusalem Peace Builders are providing, and that leadership serves the moment clearly, but it also provides an example of, of how these young people and adults, educators that we work with, will then uh, step into that role for others. And along with the, the third point, which is that, that this takes time, a key element of time is trust building trust. We don't jump in to issues of occupation, settlement, and the Holocaust, and the Nakba, uh, uh, or religious or, or ethnic bigotry in the Middle East the first five minutes. That's counterproductive. Uh, we work with our young people for days, sometimes weeks, and eventually months and years to really be able to have those breakthrough moments on the most difficult topics. So uh, this is not a shake and bake approach, you know. It, it takes time and courage. Um, not everyone is willing to step into a room where people disagree and where they know they will be challenged. So time and courage. Thank you. Thank you. I have been so encouraged by this conversation today. I've been encouraged in my personal relationships and in what I do at the Living Church. And I just want to encourage everyone listening, if you're dealing with whatever conflict on whatever scale, again, if you're going to the Lambeth Conference, if you're dealing with a personal friendship, if you're wrestling with a parishioner on Facebook, whatever it might be, maybe when's the last time you ate together? When's the last time you had fun together? How much time are you giving this? Is there a way that you can serve that person or that they could serve you? What, how, where are you meeting at? Um, are you talking about things other than the conflict? Um, are you praying for courage? There are so many resources here 
that we can all learn from. And I am so grateful to have you both here today to talk about these things. But thank you both so much, Sarah, Nicholas, for joining me here today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Blessings with your work. And um, we hope you'll join us in our calling to be peace builders in Israel, Palestine, and the world beyond. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoyed this episode, we just realized we have no ratings. Give us a good rating. Leave us a review on that there podcast platform you are using right now. To find out more about what's up at Jerusalem Peace Builders or to see how you can participate, you can go to JerusalemPeaceBuilders.org or click the link in the show notes. Come on back in two weeks when I join the Reverend Dr. Kara Slade, NASA scientist turned priest, to talk about the relationship between science and faith. Follow the science? Yes. And no. Tune in and find out what that's all about. Until then, I'm still your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.